Hello and welcome to episode 212 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we conclude our story from Northern Ireland in the early 80s, which began last week. But before we begin, I would like to say a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Laura West, Samantha Gray, Chrissy Timpson, Phil and Mickey, Laura Mancy and Kate Much. Welcome back, Kate. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you enjoyed all the behind the scenes benefits. If you want to join us, please take a look at patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Now adverts today, so let's get straight to it and set some context for today's story and see if you can guess the month and the year. Number one in the UK chart was Mariah Carey, murdering the Nielsen classic without you. I reckon the Kings of Leon or Elbow could have done that one better. Hmm, maybe. And Mariah also had the top album in Australia with Music Box. In the US, it was a boy band with Sting, Brian Adams and Rod Stewart in the top spot with All For Love. In the news this month, Jeff Gillooly pleaded guilty for his part in the attack on American Olympic figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. He took a plea bargain whereby he confessed to racketeering in exchange for testimony implicating ex-wife Tanya Harding. The screen by Norwegian painter Edvard Munch was stolen in Oslo and Andre Cecatillo a Russian serial killer was executed by shooting. Forensic tests revealed that UK MP Stephen Milligan died of asphyxiation and that his death was probably the result of an autoerotic sex practice. And in UK true crime news, Fred West was charged with the murder of his daughter Heather and the murder of Shirley Robinson, an 18-year-old woman who was last seen alive in 1978. I think it was a tricky one this week, wasn't it? Did you get it? It was February 1994. So you will recall that when we left the story last week, Mad Dog Dominic McGlinchey was Director of Operations at the INLA and instructed his organisation to carry out the awful bomb attack on the drop-in well bar in Balakelly. On that terrible night in December 1982, 17 people lost their lives and many more were injured. McGlinchey was a wanted man across Britain and six days later, two members of the INLA, Roddy Carroll and Seamus Grew, were shot dead by RUC officers after they suspected McGlinchey of being in their car, which he wasn't. At this time, McGlinchey was one of the most wanted men in Britain, but he didn't let this stop him from leading the INLA to achieve their goals. And the deaths of Grew and Carroll made him increasingly convinced that there was an insider undermining the operations of the INLA and the information was being passed on to the RUC. And he believed that he'd found the man who'd been betraying them. And this man was Eric Dale. 43-year-old Dale was a pretty insignificant figure in the INLA who'd been interviewed by the authorities about terrorism on a number of occasions. In April 1983, he'd been remanded on bail by a court in Dublin for possession of detonators, and at the time of our story he was living in Monaghan, a small town in the Republic of Ireland, close to the border with Northern Ireland. He'd split up with his wife and was living with his girlfriend Claire McMahon and her three young children. It was around 9pm on the 3rd of May when Eric Dale heard knocking on the window, 
and looked outside to see a number of armed men. His heart must have sunk immediately. Eric told Claire to go in the sitting room with her children and she later told author Martin Dillon in his excellent book The Dirty War what happened next. As Eric opened the door, a masked man entered and came into the sitting room. I was shaking and trembling and the masked man told me everything was going to be okay and not to panic. The only people in that room were me and the three children. At the time, Claire didn't realise that the masked man speaking to her was Dominic McGlinchey. His wife Mary was also part of the gang that evening. Dylan describes McGlinchey's terrifying appearance that evening, saying, McGlinchey's balaclava had slits for his eyes and stretched below his chin. He wore a combat jacket and a shoulder holster resting on his chest, which contained a magnum revolver. His right hand was positioned near the gun butt and his left held the holster. Claire briefly saw Eric face down on the floor surrounded by six men and McGlinchey explained that there was nothing to be overly concerned about as the gang were there about guns or something that was missing. He then emptied the contents of the boot of Claire's car and pushed Eric in there, telling Claire that they were bringing him back again soon. But Claire would never see him again. It was on the 7th of May, four days later, that Eric Dale's body was found wrapped in plastic near the border of Northern Ireland. He'd been tortured, severely beaten and shot in the head. It must have been a terrible death for him. It is rumoured that McGlinchey often was personally involved in torture, favouring instruments such as a red-hot poker, and on one occasion he's said to have roasted a man on an Arga cooker for a number of hours. The INLA later released a statement claiming that Eric Dale had confessed under interrogation that he'd supplied the IUC with the information about Seamus Drew and Roddy Carroll, as well as other information against the INLA. Many have doubted that this was true, and some have suggested that the real reason for this murder had nothing to do with this supposed information on Eric Dale being a grass, but in fact was down to the insanely jealous McGlinchey exacting personal revenge after hearing rumours that his wife Mary had slept with Eric whilst he was in prison. Who knows what the truth really was. Later, in May 1983, McGlinchey and his wife Mary were in operational action again, this time in Cookstown, Northern Ireland. Alongside two other men, they pulled up in a van outside the Cookstown Royal Constabulary Base and opened fire killing Reserve Constable, 31-year-old Colin Carson. The van was later recovered and the McGlinchey's fingerprints were inside. The news that McGlinchey was directly responsible for another murder raised his profile even further, and the authorities were under intense pressure to capture him. Another aspect of McGlinchey's role was raising finance for operations. A key part of this was obtained via armed robberies, and frauds close to the Amar border, and the man responsible in the INLA for processing this money in this region was called Eamon McMahon. McMahon just happened to be a brother-in-law of Eric Dale. But when no money had appeared in the INLA's accounts by July, despite a number of robberies taking place, McGlinchey was ready to take action. He couldn't allow people to see that he would allow this sort of behaviour on his watch. On the 13th of July, McGlinchey's wife Mary met McMahon and another gang member in the Imperial Hotel in Dundalk, 
equidistant between Belfast and Dublin. Mary persuaded them to come with her to a car park outside town which they agreed to do, but this was a big mistake, and one for which they would pay a heavy price. INLA members were waiting, and both men were shot in the back of their heads, and their bodies dumped back by the roadside in South Armagh. This was a very clear demonstration to the organisation from McGlinchey that no one was to mess with him whilst he was running the INLA. But an organisation like the INLA was hard to control, especially back then with the lack of technology we have today. And on the run, McGlinchey was now becoming increasingly worried that other people were double-crossing him within the INLA. If you recall at the start of last week's episode, we said that the organisation was known for not being as organised or professional as other terrorist groups and had a reputation for infighting. And as tensions increased, McGlinchey brought a number of his top people in Belfast to his farmhouse in the south of Ireland. One of those was 27-year-old Gerard Sparky Barkley, who was typical of the petty criminals recruited by the INLA in the 80s in Belfast. But Barclay was popular with the wider group and he was seen as something of a likeable rogue. He admitted to McGlinchey that he was an ODC, an ordinary decent criminal, and had been robbing banks with INLA weapons but not contributing any of the money to the organisation. Barclay was formally dismissed by McGlinchey from the INLA for this. But after the rest of the group left the farmhouse that day, Barclay was brought back to discuss some other business and told by McGlinchey that he did not tolerate volunteers using the INLA to carry out so-called homers. Barclay was shot through the head as he watched TV. It's unclear if the person who fired the bullet was Mary McGlinchey or another of his inner circle. Barclay's body was then taken into the yard where his throat was slit and drained of blood to make his body lighter to carry and then he was driven around for a few days before being dumped just across the border in Northern Ireland. It was quite clear that McGlinchey was trying to stamp out any dissent in the organisation but the murder of Barclay was a very unpopular move across the wider INLA. He was a popular man and it seemed by some as an over-the-top and unnecessary act and the disarray within the INLA was amplified by a statement made after Barclay's body was discovered. From the south of Ireland, McGlinchey claimed he was killed as he was a police informer. But a statement from the INLA in Belfast denied this allegation, saying that he had in fact been killed by British agents. The paranoia in INLA ranks started to grow, to the extent that members of their so-called army council began attending meetings only when they had guns. And in Belfast, INLA members and friends held a paramilitary funeral for Barclay, a move that was seen as a direct challenge to the leadership of McGlinchey. As had been the case before McGlinchey took over the running of the organisation, rather than just concentrating on their big picture objectives, members of the INLA were becoming more involved in settling scores and trying to even up grudges that they held a dangerous situation. Darkley is in the south of Northern Ireland near the border. On Sunday the 20th of November 1983, at about 5.40pm, worshippers began arriving for a service at the Mountain Lodge 
Pentecostal church in Darkley. During the service, the congregation were happily singing the hymn, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? There is a recording of the service, and on the tape you can hear the lovely uplifting sound of the singing, closely followed by gunfire, as three masked gunmen burst into the church and opened fire. In the panic and chaos that followed, three members of the church lost their lives. They were 59-year-old Harold Brown, 44-year-old David Wilson and 39-year-old Victor Cunningham. Harold and Victor died instantly, but David Wilson was able to open the inside door of the hall and shout warnings before succumbing to his injuries. He closed the door behind him, which meant that the gunman resorted to circling the hall, firing indiscriminately through the wooden walls. It must have been utterly terrifying for the people inside the church. Seven others were injured, including the pastor's daughter, who was shot in the elbow and the leg. More than 35 bullets were fired before these most cowardly of men made their escape screeching off in a car. A group calling themselves the Catholic Reaction Force claimed responsibility for the attack, saying they targeted the Protestant congregation in retaliation for the attacks on Catholics by a group calling itself the Protestant Reaction Force. This utterly appalling attack led to all religious denominations and political leaderships publicly condemning what had happened. And the leaders of the five main churches all went to Darkley to visit the bereaved. This was a rare act of public solidarity, the sign to show that this could surely never happen again. This attack caused revulsion and something close to hysteria. And this was heightened when the IUC blamed McGlinchey for the murders confirming that one of the guns using the attack had been used in other killings by the INLA. This was a major problem for McGlinchey, who was not only battling with his own descent within the INLA, but he was now being blamed for an outrageous sectarian murder. In fact, this time he was innocent, as the attack was carried out by a gang of three, including two INLA members, and they'd used INLA weapons. The other gunman was a well-known Republican who wanted revenge for the deaths of two members of his family, one at the hands of the IUC and the other who was killed by the loyal paramilitaries, the Ulster Volunteer Force. More about the murderous acts of that group can be found in other podcasts I've released. Six days later, McGlinchey gave an interview to a newspaper where he condemned the murders, although admitting the role that the INLA had played in the attack. And in November he expanded on this when asked about the killing, saying, I condemn them. Those people were only hillybilly folk who had done no harm to anyone. They are in no way a legitimate target. These killings are contrary to Republican socialism. They cannot be defended. This interview, carried out incidentally, when the police couldn't manage to track him down, raised his profile even further. And to avoid being caught, McGlinchey never stayed in the same place for any length of time and he became adept at making changes to his appearance. It is reported that he even attended his sister's wedding, heavily disguised, so much so that the other people in the church during the ceremony did not realise it was him. On many occasions when on the run he was almost caught, on at least two occasions 
McGlinchey and his wife Mary were stopped at checkpoints, and both times they escaped the police in a firefight. But he was eventually caught on St Patrick's Day 1984 in County Clare in the south of Ireland on the way to meet his children. He and the Ainale gang he was with took over the house for local musician John Lyons, keeping him and his children hostage. As heavily armed police reinforcements arrived at the house, McGlinchey opened fire on the cars approaching, hitting one policeman in the shoulder. Sensing the gravity of the situation they were in, McGlinchey asked for a priest and he arrived and negotiated with McGlinchey about how to end the siege with nobody else getting hurt. With McGlinchey's children and the children of John Lyons still nearby, McGlinchey eventually agreed to surrender. But McGlinchey and his accomplices insisted that the priest left the house with them as he believed otherwise there was a strong chance they would be assassinated. McGlinchey was extradited to the north of Ireland where he was charged with a murder that was carried out whilst he was in the IRA. It was another particularly unpleasant and cowardly attack when the IRA targeted reserve RUC officer James McMullen as he drove home from work in his lorry. He managed to evade the ambush and survived, but the terrorists, despite knowing that James was not home, proceeded to go to his mum's house where they opened fire, murdering a 77-year-old woman called Hester McMullen. A truly sickening attack, another one. Whilst McGlinchey was on remand for this murder, his young daughter died of meningitis at just 18 months old, and McGlinchey was allowed out to attend the funeral. At his murder trial, despite five Crown witnesses failing to appear, would you? McGlinchey was found guilty and sentenced to life. Six months later, this conviction was quashed due to the flimsy evidence that had convicted him, and he was taken back to the south of Ireland, where he was immediately arrested for his part in the siege that led to his arrest and sentenced to 10 years in jail. Whilst there, it's reported he was a quiet and well-behaved prisoner who read extensively around the subjects of constitutional and extradition law, becoming an expert and advising other prisoners. Dillon suggests that whilst in prison he reflected on his life and resolved to play no further part in terrorist activity but instead to devote time to his family. But whilst he was in prison, the infighting within the INLA continued and there was nothing he could do about it from jail. On the 2nd of February 1987, McGlinchey was woken in his cell to be told that his wife Mary had been murdered. At about 9.20 the evening before, Mary had been at home with her two children, aged 9 and 10, at their terraced home in Dundalk when two armed men in balaclavas broke through the back door and headed upstairs where Mary was shot seven times at point-blank range of a semi-automatic pistol. Her oldest son, Declan, ran to the neighbour's house who arrived to find Mary slumped in the bathroom with her head in the bath. The police believed that this murder was the work of one of the INLA splinter gangs who had broken away from the INLA since McGlinchey had been imprisoned. But there were so many people who held grudges against McGlinchey from outside the INLA too. After all, he'd freely admitted to killing up to 30 people, and also internally, including those who still resented the murders of Eric Dale, Eamon McMahon and Gerard Barclay. 
McGlinchey released a statement denouncing the Ainale's internal feud and saying that since he'd been in prison neither he nor Mary had had anything to do with the Ainale and so he did not want them to play any role in her funeral. And they didn't. Nobody's ever been convicted of the murder of Mary McGlinchey. After serving seven years for his ten-year sentence, Dominic McGlinchey was released in March 1993. Initially he moved to Dublin, but then moved to South Drogheda. The journalist Maggie O'Kane later described how McGlinchey was living, saying, Since his release from prison last year, he has lived on the east coast of Ireland in the town of Drogheda, in a house attached to Thornton's grocer's shop and video store. Locals tended to boycott it when they heard that McGlinchey had arrived. They believed his occasional appearances at the counter were a cover for a new armed gang he was forming in the Republic. But living openly with no protection and few allies in what was left of the INLA, with the enemies he had made, it was only a matter of time before there was an attempt on his life. And on Saturday the 14th of June 1993, it happened. He was driving to his son's birthday celebration at a house in County Louth, arriving about 8pm. Two armed men were waiting for his arrival and opened fire. He dived into the house, putting both his hands on his head to protect himself, with one bullet hitting his hand and another his skull. McGlinchey was rushed to hospital, but he survived and recovered quickly. He blamed British intelligence for the assassination attempt, but although nobody was ever convicted, disaffected members of the INLA were much more likely culprits. And a few months later, in February 1994, McGlinchey was not so lucky. It was around 11pm near his home, where McGlinchey and his 16-year-old son Dominic had been out at a friend's house for dinner and were on their way back to the home when McGlinchey stopped at a telephone box to make a call. A red Mazda immediately pulled up alongside him. Three men jumped out of the car and began to beat McGlinchey as his son watched terrified from the car. When he was on the ground, McGlinchey was shot at least 14 times, with a final shot, when he was already dead, aimed at his head. It is said that his last words were, Jesus, Mary, help me, as his son called for an ambulance. The inquest revealed that the bullets had hit McGlinchey in both legs, his left arm, skull, neck and upper chest. Dominic McGlinchey was 39 when he was killed. Nobody has ever been convicted of his murder. Analysis of the shotgun shell casings didn't match any other crimes according to the police and although the Mazda was traced to the north of Ireland, this lead went no further. There were, and still are, no shortage of rumours about who was responsible, from US assassins flown in and out of the country within 24 hours purely to carry out the murder, Ulster volunteer force men from Northern Ireland and numerous other people connected to the INLA who had a grudge against McGlinchey. Dominic McGlinchey was buried alongside his wife Mary and his daughter at the cemetery in Balogi, a village in County Londonderry in the north of Ireland. The priest, Father Michael Flanagan, condemned what he referred to as the media's glorification of McGlinchey's killing, telling the crowd, no one deserved to die like that, there's a little bit of good in the worst of us, 
and a little bit of bad in the best. MacDonald and Holland in their book on the INLA use the following quote from shortly after the Darkly Massacre to describe how McGlinchey felt about his own death. I could be lucky, but because I've been set up as the most wanted man in Ireland, I suppose that increases my chances of getting done in. There is a good possibility of my not seeing the end of the struggle. I will probably get shot. I will be remembered for nothing. I have no illusions about myself. There is no glory or anything to this. The only people who will remember me will be my family and particularly my children. And he was right, his death was not a glorious one. MacDonald and Holland say the following, I quote, It was a chilling prediction of his own sordid end. After all, there was hardly anything glorious about being mowed down in front of his son outside a telephone booth on a cold winter's evening. There was nothing admirable or momentous in their death caused by what was in essence a Sicilian-type family feud. After his death, the infighting in the INLA continued, with a future chief of operations, 32-year-old Gina Gallagher, also being killed by four shots as he queued to sign on for his benefits on the Falls Road in Belfast one morning in February 1996. An author, Saunders, tells how after McGlinchey's death, the INLA tried to shift their attack to loyalists, but they were not very successful in the coming years, as although they did kill five loyalists, over 40 civilians were killed, as were 10 of their own volunteers. And what happened to the McGlinchey's sons, Dominic and Declan? Whatever we think of their parents, the two boys saw so much trauma in their lives, losing their sister very young, watching their mum die, and also losing their dad when they were very young, a shooting of course witnessed by his son Dominic. There is a picture of them online, aged 9 and 11, at the graveside following their mum's murder. It is a devastating picture of grief. And in November 2015, Declan McGlinchey, a father of seven, aged just 39, the same age as his dad when he was killed, died from a massive heart attack at his home in Northern Ireland. So what do you make of what we've heard today and last week too? I'm always struck when we talk about any organised crime how people who choose this life can surely never relax. You're always fearing that knock on the window like Eric Dale. When you hear that noise that we all hear at 3am outside and we tell ourselves it's just foxes, you must always suspect something more sinister. I guess if you choose this life, this is what you sign up to. And what of Dominic McGlinchey? There are, of course, polarised opinions on him, thousands of words written to support whichever view you hold. But I like this quote from his defence counsel at his final trial, who said that like thousands of others of his generation, but for the fact that he was born in the community of South Derry, it is highly unlikely that he'd ever be before any court. As I listen to the events we have covered in this two-part story, I think it's sometimes hard to believe that this is actually real life, and not something just out of a fictional book. And there are a hundred or more other incidents that I could easily have covered that happened. But of course, for all those whose family and friends were killed in those events, what happened is incredibly real and still raw today. Our thoughts 
are with all of those people. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join the Facebook group. And if you want to be a better person and support this podcast to get all the bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes news, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Just a quick note, after I got criticised for saying that before, you don't really become a better person. It's a joke. Okay, you don't become a better person. It's just a joke. It's me being funny. Well, not funny, but telling a joke. Anyway, on that comedy bombshell, that is all for me for today. So until we speak again next week, maybe it's time to think about Christmas presents so you aren't that person buying the CD at your local garage at 6pm on Christmas Eve. Trust me, I've been there. They really won't like it. So until we speak next week, please do take it easy. And despite all the others out there, trust me, I do know. Please stay classy. Cheerio for now.